When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And this is another one of our very special, extremely fun, and absolutely not even a little bit designed to make Hannah cry wrap-up episodes. Amazing. I cannot wait to absolutely not cry. But before we launch into this celebration of stoicism, (laughs) let's pause for a moment in the sorting chat to talk about something light and frothy. So tell me, Marcel, what would your boggart be? Ooh. (laughs) Light and frothy. Tell me what you're afraid of. So I think mine would be some kind of parent figure really angry and yelling at me. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what would be the physical representation of someone being mad at you? Because that is truly your deepest fear. It's like my probably my most present, unshakable, ongoing anxiety is getting in trouble. And in particular, getting in trouble from a person who's supposed to like love and care for you unconditionally. <laughs> so I think there may be some trauma to unpack. <laughs> I love to laugh about childhood trauma. (laughs) Woo, starting off strong. What about you, Hannah? (laughs) I mean, listen, I have an actual phobia, and Mm -hmm. so it would definitely be something to do with that actual phobia, which Mm -hmm. is that I have, I think it's called tryptophobia, which is a fear of little holes in things. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Which was a thing that went viral maybe five years ago, Everybody was talking about it, and I didn't Mm -hmm. know what the word was. And so I Googled the word, 
And then because of the way Google works, images popped up at the top. And then I got lightheaded and had to lie down. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So it would be something with holes. That's incredible. I wonder if that is, and I know that it isn't, I just think it's really funny to say this out loud, but I wonder if that's a Gemini thing because Trevor is also, (laughs) he gets so freaked out about like Swiss cheese. (laughs) I love anecdata. We've got a sample size of two. I say, let's go for it. All Geminis, super scared of holes. Incredible. Last episode was a little sound effects light, we recognize. But have no fear, because, dear listeners, it's time for Granger Danger. I love just coming back to... Just talking about Hermione. It's really my <laughs> my comfort zone. And this, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, is a great book for Hermione. Hard agree. She's not great at communicating all the time, and she's a bit defensive about Crookshanks. <laughs> but she shows herself to be a friend who cares more about her friend's well-being mm-hmm. than being popular, like when she tells McGonagall about the mysterious broomstick. Which is the smart thing to do. Yeah. The smart and responsible thing to do. So she she cares more about Harry being safe than about Harry being mad at her. Mm-hmm. And that scene when Harry and Ron go and visit Hagrid, and Hagrid is like, Hermione's been visiting me a lot, and she's really sad because you're being dicks. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Also, despite the fact that she's, like, wildly overburdened with a double course load, she's still finding the time to help Hagrid with Buckbeak's case. Yeah. Like, she's such a good friend in this book in ways that are not, like, a nice and straightforward way to be a good friend, but, like, an actually meaningful way to be a good friend. Yeah. Plus, unlike in the last book, where... She's unconscious in a hospital bed while Ron gets to be the sidekick. (laughs) In this book, Ron's unconscious in a hospital bed while she gets to be the sidekick. And thank God, right? Can you imagine, like, Ron's advice if he and Harry had been watching Peter Pettigrew as scabbers scamper off into the forest? Absolutely not. Absolutely. (laughs) We need level-headed Hermione to navigate the vagaries of time travel. So it is very good that she is there. Mm -hmm. But the moment I love the most is the confrontation in the Shrieking Shack when Lupin goes to Sirius to help him up and Hermione screams, I don't believe it! Yeah. (laughs) She's so mad! (laughs) I love that moment too. I remember we we talked about it in the original run because it's such an incredible cathartic moment because Hermione has been so stressed and so underappreciated and working so hard for the entire book and like on her own and just giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. In this moment, in this one moment, she's, she's just sick of this shit. She's just done. She's absolutely done. And it's, you know, it's a turning point for her Mm -hmm. because 
even though it does turn out that Lupin was trustworthy, it's a moment in which she, like, really recognizes that an authority figure might betray you. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's the revelation that she absolutely figured out he was a werewolf. And then she made a judgment call and decided to keep that secret. And so we both see her becoming sort of an increasingly critical thinker, somebody who is, like, willing to push back against the rules when she knows that they aren't necessarily ethical, who can, like, differentiate between rules and ethics. Mm -hmm. And also somebody who is, like, maybe a little more willing to stand up for herself and maybe a little bit more willing to say, like, please, please don't betray me, terrible authority (laughs) figure. Like, I just feel like a lot of the things that make her the character that I love really come out in this book in particular and in that final scene, right? Which just coalesces, like, her her ethics, her compassion, her critical thinking, and also her uh, her capacity to have a little bit of a temper. Yeah. <laughs> we love angry women. <laughs> I really just do. I really just do like all of the moments in the book when women yell. <laughs> I Same, you know, same. But I really, like, I want to come back to her decision to keep Lupin's lycanthropy a secret versus her decision to tell McGonagall about the broom. Because I think Mm. these are two, like, really interesting sort of um, sides of the same Hermione coin because it's not that it's an issue about rules. It's that it's an issue about safety. And so with the broom... She thinks that Sirius Black may be the person who sent it. Oh my gosh, spoiler. It was. She was right. (laughs) And then also, with Lupin, she decides to keep the secret because she has no evidence that he would be a danger to any of them. Mm -hmm. And so she, like, in both of these instances, she, she makes these really hard choices, which I think... Doing the opposite would have been a lot easier in both cases, right? Like tattling, yes. <laughs> tattling on to Dumbledore that your teacher is a secret werewolf. <laughs> like she doesn't know that Dumbledore knows. <laughs> yeah. It would have been absolutely easier for her to tattle on Lupin and keep the secret about the broomstick. And the fact that she doesn't, like you said, it suggests that what she's doing is no longer following rules for rules sake. What we see her doing instead is arriving at conclusions informed by critical thinking and a more sophisticated understanding of the world. Okay, so I completely agree that this is an incredible book for Hermione. And one of the things that I think is really impressive about this Hermione that we're getting to know is that she's a more complex character. And that comes with things that I also feel complicated about. And we will yeah. continue to feel complicated about Hermione as as things move on. But I kind of want to talk about Hermione's disrespect for Professor Trelawney. Mm. Because it is audible. It is palpable. <laughs> and I feel complicated about it 
possibly because of my own personal insistence that Trelawney is a psychic genius, and so Hermione is wrong (laughs) about all these things she says about her. Or it's also possible that I feel complicated about it because I identify with Trelawney's inability to teach her students how to do a craft that comes naturally to some and not at all to others. (laughs) Not unlike, you know, writing coherent essays, coherent and persuasive essays. Or it's also just that I really, like, fundamentally detest witnessing someone being careless with someone else's feelings. I just find that, like, intolerable. But nevertheless, my point is, Hermione is so rude to her teacher. And she's rude rude to her teacher in public in front of the teacher. And I love that she's standing up to authority figures because authority is a social construct and it is unreliable. But I really wish that she were instead directing that assertiveness towards someone like Snape for being an abusive prick instead of Trelawney for being eccentric and maybe not a great teacher. So that's my hot take on (laughs) Hermione as a complex character in this book. I don't know, Hannah, what do you think? But you know, it's interesting that, that I would have to sort of revisit the text to see if this holds up. But I feel like we see Harry being disrespectful towards Snape and then constantly being corrected. Mm, mm -hmm. Like he's constantly being sort of noticed being disrespectful and being told that he needs to be more respectful. But Hermione's disdain for Trelawney is not corrected and is in fact mirrored by many of the other teachers Mm -hmm. at Hogwarts. So there is the sense at a narrative level that like, it is okay to make fun of Trelawney because she is a silly character. Mm-hmm. Like, it almost feels like the people who take Trelawney seriously are being painted as silly. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hermione is, like, a practical person who, like, disdains silliness. And there is a little bit in that of, like, you know, a kind of... I'm not like other girls feminism. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, you know, the kind of like, I'm going to prove I'm an interesting woman by thinking that other women are bad. Yeah, yeah. Coming down on femininity and whimsy in order to set yourself apart. Yeah, absolutely. Just that kind of, don't you hate it when girls, anything, any way of ending that sentence just is always wrong. Whatever the end of that sentence is, it's bad. <laughs> and that is really going to come out even more significantly in book five with Hermione's attitude towards Fleur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, complicated and imperfect character, but that is what keeps us coming back for more. Are we not all complicated and imperfect characters? Not me. <laughs> I hope you're feeling fashionable because it's time for Luke Buk. Ooh! Oh, wait. Oh. Record scratch sound effect. No, it isn't. I have absolutely nothing to say about fashion in this episode, so I'm pivoting wildly to Hannah's nerd corner. Um, excuse me, what? Hmm? What about Lupin's shabby robes? Eh. Or Trelawney's beads? Eh. Beads? Eh. 
Okay. No, you know what? That's fair because that's it. There's not a whole lot to work with in this book. Um, Okay. Tell me about this nerd corner situation. Great. Incredible. Marcel, Mm -hmm. you won't know this because you aren't allowed to use Twitter. Mm. But recently, I asked our followers to help me decide what Dungeons & Dragons class various characters in Harry Potter would be. Ooh. And so that's just what I'm going to talk about in this segment instead of instead of fashion, because I have nothing to say about shabby robes. All right. So before we get started, the reason why I enjoy this activity mm-hmm. is because turning fictional characters into D&D characters is another form of interpretation. Ooh. So it's a way of breaking them down and trying to understand... What are the logics through which this character functions, Mm -hmm. right? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? How do they make decisions? How do they navigate the world? It's like you're recasting these fictional characters as like playable characters. Right. And so if I was going to play Harry, what would my strengths be? What would my weaknesses be? What would I be good at? What would I be bad at? Mm -hmm. You know, how would I tackle particular situations? I think in a lot of ways... It's like fan fiction in the sense that you are thinking creatively about inhabiting these familiar characters for the purposes of playing out different scenarios with them. Right, right. But I like it as a kind of form of reading. So let's test run this and see if we notice anything interesting about these characters by virtue of trying to reconceive of them as D&D characters. Perfect. For those who might not be familiar, Dungeons & Dragons, D&D, still uses the language of class and race to categorize characters, which is <laughs> truly wild. The race categorization is particularly insidious because mm-hmm. choosing a race comes with certain built-in racial bonuses, like all elves are dexterous and all orcs are strong, which promotes a deeply essentialist notion of racial identity as like a biological truth. Mm-hmm. But class, which is also a very strange word to use, is about what your character does. So what skills and proficiencies and abilities they have. Okay. Okay. There is a built-in metric for wealth in the game, (laughs) but they call it lifestyle. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Yeah. I love that a lot. Anyway, so a thing that I find really neat about the different classes in D&D is that none of them are inherently better than any others. Okay. And they all involve being good at different things. So depending on what your class is, you'll have strength in different kinds of skills and abilities. So wizards are the magic users who are Mm intelligence-based, but druids are wise, which is different from intelligence in the game. Fighters are strong, rogues are dexterous, bards are charismatic, etc. So, I want to share with you what we on the Witch Please Twitter collectively developed so far, and then invite you and the listeners Ooh. to share thoughts about characters we haven't identified thus far, <laughs> and whether the ones we've done are right. Okay. And okay. also, whether or not we should play a Hogwarts fanfic D&D campaign. Ooh, that sounds like it would be a delightful day-long activity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hit me. So we started with the main three. Mm-hmm. Hermione, for me, is a like capital W wizard. Okay. Wizards are the intelligence-based magic users. They acquire spells through study, 
and they're always lugging spell books around with them. Okay, this makes perfect sense. Harry, on the other hand, I think is a warlock. Okay. So warlocks are also magic users, but they're the charisma-based magic class. And Harry is much more charismatic than he is intelligent, (laughs) right? He's He's not book smart, but he's got other skills. And second, and I think even more significantly, warlocks get their powers from pacts with otherworldly beings. And I think that we could think of Harry as a warlock with a pact with Voldemort. Okay. Since a whole bunch of Harry's powers come through this, like, fundamental connection he has with Voldemort and through the scar. Yeah. His ability to speak Parseltongue, you know, the nature of, like, how their wands connect, Mm -hmm. his ability to, like, know where Voldemort is. Like, we've got all of these things that sort of come through this pact. So does the pack situation also maybe speak to the relationships that Harry seems to develop with other people and creatures in the Harry Potter series? Like the fact that he gets so much help from Dobby or like the centaurs when they like, I don't know. I'm not sure if this counts. That's less the pact and more because the pact is usually with one force. Oh, okay. Um, But I think that points back to the charisma thing. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Warlocks are charismatic magic users. And lots and lots of magical creatures obviously find Harry deeply charismatic because they are constantly saving him. Yeah. (laughs) They, like, actively want to help him out. Gotcha. And warlocks are good at persuasion. Warlocks are also driven by ambition and a need for power, (laughs) which we know is a latent quality in Harry because the Sorting Hat said he would do well as a Slytherin. Mm -hmm. So I think what I like about thinking about Harry as a warlock is that it helps me a little bit more understand that, like, you would do well in Slytherin thing. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Which sort of feels in some ways like you don't really see that in Harry as a character. But when you think, like, okay, he's charismatic, he's ambitious, he is getting his power from his ability to persuade people and from his connection to this other sort of darker source of magic, then you can start to picture, like, a version of Harry that, like, could have gone down that Slytherin path. Right, right. Okay. Now, what about Ron? Because, bless him, we give him a hard time. So he, the thing about Ron is that he is not intelligent in the sense that the game means, right? He's not okay. book smart like Hermione does. He does not learn well from texts. He is not interested in that kind of learning. Mm-hmm. And he's... Bless him. He is not charismatic. No. He is not good at persuading people of things. He is not easily or naturally liked by others. Mm -hmm. What I think Ron is at his best Mm -hmm. is wise in the sense that I think he can be very perceptive. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, book Ron. Movie Ron is useless. Movie Ron is really an unfortunate consequence of adaptation. (laughs) Very bad. Very bad. But Bookron, we often see him being very perceptive. And he has this kind of deep knowledge of the wizarding world that allows him to sort of understand the lay of the land well. Okay. Right? He sort of notices things, like he gets how things work. He's not always, like, hyper-observant in the way that Hermione is, right? That she's got this sort of intelligent 
investigative capacity. Mm-hmm. But, like, Ron notices stuff. I think the, the perfect moment for this is is in the first book when Hermione's, like, freaking out about the um, devil's snare. Yeah. Oh, right, 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 right. And Ron's like, you're a wizard. <laughs> She's like, oh, I wish I'd brought some matches. And he's like, uh, <laughs> make a fire. <laughs> Like, that just feels like classic Ron to me. Yeah. Okay. And so there's a few different wisdom-based magic classes. Mm -hmm. But the most interesting suggestion I thought was from Twitter user Manal Pika, Mm -hmm. who suggested that we could think of him as a cleric. Because clerics tend to be sidekicks. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of healing spells. So in terms of how you play them, they are not the one who is rushing to the forefront. They are not the hero. Mm Mm-hmm. But if we think of them as a cleric, clerics are like the opposite of warlocks. So like they get their power from from a, a god or some sort of positive force. Mm-hmm. So we can think of him as a cleric of Godric Gryffindor. Okay. He can summon the sword when he's got his shit together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's also clearly a Gryffindor by inheritance. That's right. Also worth noting that both warlocks and clerics are magic users who can be kind of beefy. <laughs> The game mechanic there is that they can wear armor, but it's like they can be a little bit, a little bit stronger, a little bit more physically fit. Whereas wizards cannot wear armor and are, by definition, bad at sports. Amazing! This is incredible. This is this is indeed our top three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, there's some more. There's some obvious ones. Neville is for sure a druid. That's the magic class that loves nature and has a deep connection oh, to yeah. plants and animals. Mm-hmm. Hagrid, we thought, is probably a ranger. Okay. They usually have animal companions, and they're really good at tracking and hunting and dealing with magical beasts. Um, so there are some good sort of fits there. I think, though, we can agree that Hagrid is not as sexy as Aragorn. Does a ranger need to be, like, blow the gaskets off your shit hot? Because... <laughs> Marcel? And, no. Sexiness is subjective. I know, except when it comes to Aragorn. (laughs) Obviously, certain giants find Hagrid very sexy. That's true. Listen, Aragorn is filthy. So that is a quality that rangers have. That's okay. Often very dirty. Okay. The question is, how well do those two characters clean up? But that... As we all know, being able to clean up well is primarily a function of wealth. And I will say that I find cleaned up kingly Aragorn not even remotely attractive. So that's clearly yeah. not the important so you part. Just love, you just love rough boys. Ew. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Woo. Anyway, I clearly find this process wildly entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I am curious if other people find it like an interesting lens to cast on these characters if you feel like it does sort of help us to see different things about them. I think particularly helping us to be like, oh, these three protagonists all have different strengths and those strengths are complementary, which is why they work well together, but are not all good at everything. I mean, this makes a ton of sense to me as a sort of interpretation tool Sort of in the same way that it is fun and delightful and also really useful to imagine your Myers-Briggs personality types as 
Lord of the Rings characters or mm. whatever, you know? You, like, take one thing that makes sense in a certain way, but then when you apply it to a different universe or a different popular culture or something like that, all of a sudden you're able to understand it in a totally, totally different way. Yeah. Ultimately, I think it's analogy as a as a critical tool. Analogy. Right? That's the word this I'm looking for. This thing is for. like this thing. A classic example is the tendency among the fandom to sort anyone and everything from everything outside of Harry Potter into Hogwarts houses. We love to do that. And the way that the fandom was not satisfied with the straightforward sorting system and so developed, like, hyper-specific secondary house (laughs) systems. These activities of categorization, I think, can be interesting new lenses. And they can also, I mean, as I was saying about the notion of race, they can become dangerously essentialist. Mm. We -hmm. see this kind of, these border cases sometimes in, like, how much queers love astrology mm-hmm. and how, like, mm-hmm. thinking about astrology can be a really pleasurable way to think about identity and the complexity of our experiences of the world and how we relate to one another and, you know, and all of these different things. But then sometimes you get people who, who are like, oh, you're a Pisces? I don't talk to Pisces. <laughs> and you're like, thank you for taking this fun, whimsical thing and turning it into another way to be an asshole. Great job. I hate it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Astrology, I'm not sure if I've said this on the podcast before, but it is a thing that I say often. I really love astrology because it allows me to see the things that I previously would have considered like weaknesses or failings, not as things that I'm doing wrong, but in fact, just like parts of myself that are just characteristic of, you know, where the celestial bodies were when I happened to enter this extremely complicated world. And I think in general, that idea of like, there are many ways of being, and they are all fine, and it's nice to celebrate the way that they're different speaks, not so much to the way that the house system works in the books, which seems to have a real hierarchy. (laughs) Yeah, That goes Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, Slytherin. Like, there's a real hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But in the way the fandom yes. has embraced the house system. Totally. And it's not like it's bad to be a Slytherin. It's like, cool, Slytherins are great, Hufflepuffs are great, Ravenclaws are great, and Gryffindors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. We're just kidding, Gryffindor listeners. We love you. So... If you also find this process entertaining, I would love to hear your suggestions for other characters. Mm-hmm. And I promise that in our next wrap-up episode, I will definitely talk about fashion again, because we are going to have some school uniforms to discuss. Oh, yes. And some Yule Ball outfits. Yes. Awesome. Listen, witches, I know sometimes we can be pretty hard on these books, but that doesn't mean we can't still find moments of delight and pleasure in them. And that's where we're going to focus our attentions in Orchidius, where we share something new that we noticed for the first time on this read-through. Hannah, who do you want to talk about? I would like to talk about... Florian Fortescue. Incredible. 
Florian Fortescue is a character who I never pay attention to. Okay. Because he is a passing reference in this book. And then we don't hear about him again until he is disappeared by Voldemort. Indeed. And I did a little bit of background research. It does turn out that he was a character who, like, Rowling originally had intentions to do more with and then cut out his side plot. So, like, he's named because he's supposed to become more significant and then that plot disappeared. And so all we've got are these two moments of this character. But what we see of him here is this man who owns an ice cream shop in Diagon Alley. And when Harry is spending these final weeks of summer living in this place that is objectively a very strange place for a 13-year-old to be living, (laughs) like without his friends around him, no peers, no family. He's living alone in a hotel. (laughs) And Every day, he goes to this ice cream shop to work on his summer homework. Mm, mm -hmm. Hogwarts seems to have summer homework. Yeah, they do. I don't approve, but (laughs) he goes to work on his summer homework, and Florian Fortescue gives him free ice cream and helps him with his essays. Mm -hmm. And I just, reading it this time around, every time I reread these books, I'm older, That is a function of time. (laughs) Mm, Social construct, not real. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot. Time's not real. (laughs) And so I think more and more about the adults. Mm -hmm. And I think differently about the children. But I suddenly just found myself in this read-through just picturing being this, like, adult who owns an ice cream shop and being like, look at this poor fucking kid. Yeah. Just, like, alone in a business district like a non-residentially zoned area (laughs) with like nobody really to talk to or hang out with, just like quietly doing his homework at my ice cream shop and trying to do that thing where like you want to be nice to a kid, but not in a way that creeps them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where you want to be like, I am going to help you, but I am not going to try to be your friend because I am an adult and you are a child. Mm -hmm. And so what a kid's like, help on their homework, ice cream. <laughs> this is delightful. I love this. You know, yeah. I just found myself really having this, this tender moment for Florian Fortescue, just like an adult trying to be nice to a kid who soon is going to die horribly. The kid or the adult? I mean, both, yeah. but mostly the adult. Yeah. Somebody point me at some well-written Florian Fortescue fan fiction. <laughs> Florian Fortescue fan fiction is incredible. Just rolls off the tongue. That's what I want. All right, Marcel, what about you? Well, when we first started reading this book, I think this was another conversation that was happening on the Witch Please Twitter that I think you shared with me or told me about. This theory that Lupin works as a sessional lecturer or a sessional instructor in muggle schools Mm -hmm. up to the point where he gets you know, hired by Dumbledore. And that really stuck with me when I was reading this time around. And the the evidence for this that I believe in my heart is incontrovertible. (laughs) I've arrived at an interpretation and I simultaneously have decided that interpretation is unassailable. (laughs) I have evidence. 
The evidence is Lupin uses tea bags. Now hear me out. He invites Harry to have a cup of tea, saying, mm-hmm. I'm afraid I've only got tea bags. This is on page 116. Establishing that tea bags are not the norm. Tea bags, one, not the norm. Two, tea bags are an invention to streamline the mass production and distribution of tea. Mm-hmm. 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 The wizarding world does not use mass production of anything. Mm-mm. You cannot tell me that a people who still use quills for writing use tea bags. They buy we've established they buy newt eyes by the scoop. <laughs> they definitely use loose leaf tea. Absolutely. If we didn't know that that was the default, I mean, Lupin apologizing for it mm-hmm. would be evidence that that's that loose leaf tea is is the default. Exactly. So where is Lupin working that tea bags are the norm? Fucking shared shitty sessional office. It's got to be shared shitty sessional offices. Yep. Where you don't have access to a real kitchen. No. All you have is a plug-in kettle and one mug. I mean, I say this as somebody whose beloved office that I haven't been able to be in for over (laughs) a year is chock-a-block full of a plug-in kettle and a bunch of tea bags. (laughs) Like, if you're using loose-leaf tea, you need a place where you can either clean out your tea strainer or your tea pot or your tea cups. You need access to a kitchen. Exactly. You can't do it. Can't do it if you don't have a sink. The case for Lupin's previous career as a sessional (laughs) gets increasingly airtight with every additional piece of textual information we find. Tea bags, people. Case closed. Real Sherlock Holmes over here. Oh, yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We've already established that this episode won't make me cry. Mm -mm. So with absolutely no feelings about it whatsoever, it's time for devastating fun facts in which Marcel shares some fun facts about Hogwarts students and staff not mentioned in the books because these things were not part of Harry's journey. Okay. I know that normally I have a whole bunch of little ones. Mm -hmm. This time I have two little ones. And one extensive backstory. Okay. You are just writing fan fiction at this point, and I'm here for it. It would appear that that is what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Fun fact. Rosmerda is a whiz at potions. This is what makes her such a great server and bartender. She just whips these things together, no problem. 
she is proficient at brewing Wolfsbane. And she sells it at cost, which for those of you not versed in retail speak, she just sells it for what it costs to make, to the local werewolf pack. Since the ministry won't regulate the production and distribution of this life-saving medicine. Now, if Rosmerda had known that Remus Lupin was a werewolf when he was at Hogwarts, she would have supplied Hogwarts with Wolfsbane potion at no charge. But because of stigma, she didn't know. And that's a bummer. Started nice and then you made it sad. Sorry. Number two. Ready? Fun fact. Sirius Black loves kitties. <coughs> loves them. But he was never allowed to have one as a child. So instead, when he was very little, he would make friends with all of the neighborhood cats who sort of prowled around Grimmauld Place in London. And his first magic tricks, you know how like little kids, when they start doing magic and they don't quite know what they're doing yet, um, his first magic tricks were making like feathers and leaves float around for the cats to chase and play with. And he had always planned when he got his own place after leaving Hogwarts to get a kitty, to get his very own kitty. But unfortunately, with the chaos of Voldemort's rise to power, he just never got the chance. And that's why he bonded so quickly with Crookshanks when they met on the Hogwarts grounds. Fun fact. I have no response to that one. <laughs> so the extended backstory that I have here is about Crookshanks. Because we just oh. don't know enough about this sweet orange boy. We don't. All right. So before Hermione gave him a forever home, Crookshanks had had a few different families. The first family who he lived with was a big muggle family, and he had lived with them for about 10 years. Unfortunately, a few years after the family's youngest child arrived, that child started to develop really bad allergies. And so, you know, the parents, they tried everything, but there was just no way that they could keep the sweet orange boy and not have their littlest kiddo being super sick all the time. And so they had to surrender Crookshanks to a shelter. And it was really, really sad, and everybody cried a lot. But, <laughs> but... Like the meanest fan fiction. Turns out that's my, that's my superpower is mean fan fiction. Fortunately, the shelter had a program where they match senior kitties with senior citizens. And so Crookshanks was matched with this absolutely kind and loving 80-year-old man who lived on his own in an assisted living complex. And it was love at first sight, and the two lived absolutely blissfully happily together for about three years until the man passed away peacefully in his sleep with Crookshanks purring by his feet. So it's possible that this elderly man might have been a squib because his sole family contact was a witch. And when she arrived after his passing to collect his belongings, she recognized Crookshank's affinity with magic folk right away. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to adopt him because she did a great deal of traveling for work. And so she brought him to the magical menagerie, certain that he would be scooped up right away. So it's funny that Hermione tells us 
that the shopkeeper said he'd been there for ages and that nobody wanted him. So I've been wondering, how can that be? Well, Crookshanks is indeed a very special cat. After years of being a companion to these two different households, he just had this feeling that there was something important that he needed to do. And so whenever people came into the magical menagerie looking for a cat, Crookshanks would consider whether or not they would, you know, lead him to his calling. And most people didn't seem like they had that potential. Just He just didn't get that feeling from them. And so he made himself as undesirable as possible to all of these folks believing that when the right person came along, he would know. So... When Ron brought Scabbers into the shop, (gasps) Crookshanks knew that this is what he'd been waiting for. And he bonded with Hermione immediately. He was like, this, this is it. This is my time to do something special before I retire to Australia with this lovely dentist couple. The end. Fun facts! You know what? Mm -hmm. That one was pretty fun. Yeah. Love a little adventure for Crookshanks. I feel like I came through that one relatively intact. I think you did great, Hannah. I'll only have to cry for one hour. (laughs) Just wait for the next one. There's so much. Oh, you you fucker. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Before we wave goodbye... To the prisoner of Azkaban for the last time as he flies away on a hippogriff, we want to end with some ongoing questions and concerns. We have some questions to return to from last time. I mean, primarily the question of the Weasley's class status. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring this up for two reasons. One, because when recently checking the Witch Please Gmail for the first time in six months... I noticed that we have several essays from <laughs> listeners in there with links and sources. Incredible. And I wanted to point to the fact that we actually very recently recorded a Patreon bonus interview taking a deep dive into the topic mm-hmm. for people who are interested in sort of following up that conversation more. I also wanted to note that we have sort of been scheming about the possibility of doing a future episode about class and Bourdieu Mm. and the idea of cultural capital and an idea that we like started to put together during that interview, Mm -hmm. which is the idea of magical capital, which interestingly complicates the nature of class in the wizarding world, Mm -hmm. if we think about it that way. So I just wanted to point people towards that interview because I think it offers a lot of the evidence that mm-hmm. folks have been have been pointing out to us. Doesn't put the question to rest, but certainly spends more time with it. <laughs> I mean, does any good interview ever put a theoretical question to rest? Absolutely not. A couple of other brief things that I want to bring up. One is from Twitter user Renska Janssen. Mm-hmm. Apologies if that is not at all how your name is said. Who wrote... I was wondering whether there might be a very concrete reason why James, Sirius, and Peter never registered as Animagi. If I'm not mistaken, they graduated in the middle of the first war against Voldemort, which not only made their abilities more useful, but also Mm -hmm. made registration potentially dangerous. If Voldemort took over the ministry or had inside contacts, they would lose an opportunity for safety in their animal forms. Love that. 
So I think that, you know, further to that conversation we had about them remaining unregistered, it's interesting to think about that as a like, well, they were functionally operating as spies at that point. That's true. So like, why would they register an ability they had to a ministry that they couldn't trust? Mm -hmm. So that's thing the first. Thing the second is from Emily E. K. Murdoch, who wrote, request for a full ep on Bogarts. Specifically, how Lupin always calls it he and never mm. it, they, creature. Assumptions of masculine violence, masculine unpredictability, masculine unknowability, mm. troubled by Snape in female-coded clothes, and how funny that is. Mm. And Marcel, you also have a question about Bogarts. I do. So maybe we should add that in. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. So while it's true we can't do a full episode on Bogarts, these are incredible creatures that require a ton of further investigation. I want to know about the nature of Bogarts and the way that they affect people. Specifically, this time reading, I was really curious why it is that the Bogart causes Harry to experience the physiological effects of being in the presence of a Dementor when that same Bogart does not cause Lupin to transform into a werewolf when it takes the shape of the full moon. So why? Why might that be? So the reason why I wanted to raise these, even though we don't have time to fully tackle them, mm -hmm. is because I think that combined this question of like, why is the Bogart a man, apparently? <laughs> and how do they work? Why do they have different effects on different people? I think points us to a larger question, which is how does this book series conceive of shape-shifting and transformation mm. and the relationship between the real and the imagined and the idea of, of whether when you have changed shape, you become the thing you have changed into or if there is some real, quote-unquote, real version of you. Mm -hmm. You know, we sort of got at this with the werewolves, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Is it like, Lupin is the real person, and when he's a werewolf, he's turned into a monster. Or he is a werewolf, and that's him revealing his inner monstrosity. We get at it with the Animagi. Mm -hmm. I think we're really going to have to grapple with it when we talk about Rita Skeeter. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Alistair Moody. And Alistair Moody. Yes, absolutely. And then later on with Tonks. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of shape-shifting and transformation happening in this series, and that the relationship of these, these various transformative characters to some, like, essence of, of real identity mm -hmm. and the impacts they have on other people is, I think, really unstable mm -hmm. in really interesting ways. And we can compare the fact that, like, for Harry, the Bogart becomes functionally a real Dementor, but the moon isn't a real moon. To the way that, like, when Harry learns from a Moody who isn't actually Moody, he still learns from him. Mm -hmm. Even though that should be the worst teacher in the series. And yet. And yet. <laughs> and I think, you know, when on the other hand, when we see Rita Skeeter as a character who transforms into a bug, or Peter Pettigrew as a character who transforms into a rat... Those transformations are meant to tell us something essential and true about those characters, mm -hmm. as though they are revealing their inner selves in some way. So there is this really sort of strange 
function of transformation in the series. And I'd like us to uh, to put a pin in it and come back to it. That sounds awesome. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 20 of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryworks.com or ohwitchplease.ca, or of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to the whole incredible production team at Not Sorry for making this podcast possible. The best way for you, dear listeners, to say thank you is to support our Patreon. But you can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me struggle through this. Thanks to uh, Ricker P, L. Dot and Folks, Fiber, or maybe Fiber, underscore, George Speaks, Pink underscore Bean, Wouter, it's Dutch. That's very helpful. I appreciate that. KG0991. Kate, what is called Kate? Now, this one might be Rainbow Sherby or Rainbow's Herbie. Either option. Whimsical and delightful. DC Gal 93 and HN Forsen. Thank you for your lovely five-star reviews. If you want to hear even more from us, head over to patreon.com slash please to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you, including unedited audio of the original run, bonus interviews, Q&A episodes, movie watch-alongs, and <gasps> our brand new Prefix tier, which gives you every queer's favorite accessory, an enamel pin. Yay! I'm wearing an enamel pin right now. Yeah, you are. On our next episode, we're beginning our discussion of book four, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But until then... Later, witches. <laughs>